name is Lee, and I'm one of the pastors here. And we are in the thick of the holiday season. Has anybody finished all their Christmas shopping? Okay, we got a couple of you. I still think probably most of you that raise your hand are lying, but that's good. How many of you are stressed out because you haven't done any shopping at all? Good, okay, we got, then we got some honest people there too. All right, so we're in this holiday season, and it is such a, such a wonderful time, such a beautiful time. Um, it's a time where we focus on, on the birth of Christ and on what that means for us. So the first question I want to ask you, this is, there's going to be some audience participation this morning. Everybody's excited, right? The, the extroverts are excited, the introverts are like, I picked the wrong day to come to church. Okay, so what I want you to think of right now is, have you ever received a bad Christmas gift? Ever received a, like, when you got it, you were like, what am I going to do with this? And then you knew as soon as that person left, you were going to throw it in the garbage? Anybody? anybody? Okay, so... Here's the audience participation part. When I count to three, you're going to tell me what that bad gift was. All right? One, two, three. Okay, close. Close. Well, for, for my bad gift, and just to let you guys know, I have discussed this with my wife. She gave me the okay to mention this during my sermon today. Uh, but one year, she got me a sweater for Christmas, and it looked hideous, and I wanted to throw it away. Um, but I wore it the week of Christmas, and that was the last time that I ever wore it. And so a little bit of time goes by, and she says, how come you don't wear that sweater that I got you? And I said, I, I love you, so I'll be honest with you. I, it's terrible. I don't, I don't want to wear it. And so luckily, she was okay with that. She, she was not happy at first, but she did not make me wear the sweater any further, which she could have done, and let's be honest. She could have made me do that. Now, no, Jordan, I don't still have that. I don't still have that sweater. <laughs> no. I, I'm pretty sure I took it to Goodwill, I think is what happened to it. So now I want to flip that. Have you ever received a Christmas gift that was maybe kind of out of the blue or just so amazing that you were excited about having that? You know, I'm, I'm going to get so much use out of this gift. It's such a wonderful thing. Anybody have that gift? Okay, we're going to do the same thing. I'm going to count to three again. I want you to tell me what that gift is. One, two, three. Okay, a lot more people contributed to that, so that's good. That means we have more good gifts than bad gifts. Now, here's one of the things that I've discovered as I have gotten older. When I was young, getting a practical gift for Christmas was annoying, right? <laughs> getting clothes, anything that was actually useful, I, I didn't want that for Christmas, right? As I have gotten older, and especially as I have become a parent, practical gifts are the greatest thing in the history of the world. When I was thinking about this, my favorite gift, when I was thinking about when my wife and I, her family lives in Alabama, my family lives in Louisiana. So when we go for the holidays, it's an eight-hour trip from her family's house to my family's house. And so as the kids got older, we're like, okay, you know, we're not going to give you a lot of screen time, but we'd at least want, you know, to have something for you to watch. So we give them the iPad. It would always, we tried to set it up between the seats, between my seat and her seat. It would always eventually fall. One Christmas, Lindsay's aunt gives us an iPad holder for the car. And I was, it's the most ecstatic I've ever been about a Christmas gift in my life. Because <laughs> like, oh, it's going to be so wonderful. We don't have to hold this thing up anymore. The kids can use it. That was what I kept thinking of. I kept like, should I have a better gift that I should think of for the administration? But that was what I was most excited about. And what was, I knew was going to be most useful. 
So thinking back to your bad gifts, or thinking back to Christmas gifts that you've gotten that you don't want, how many of you have ever exchanged a Christmas gift? Okay. You can wave them high. I mean, it's fine. Yeah, we're not going to call you out on that. Now, we think about our bad Christmas gift and our good Christmas gift that we just mentioned. Every single one of us would trade that bad gift to receive the good gift that we love so much. Every single one of us, that makes sense, right? How many of us would take that good gift that we love and we would trade it to get the bad gift that we didn't like? Nobody would do that. That makes absolutely no sense. To trade something good and useful, something that can do you no good. But that's exactly what Jesus did. That's exactly the exchange that Jesus made with us. And that's what we're going to be in today. We're going to be in Mark chapter 15. And I want to give you a little recap about what Pastor Matt spoke about last week. We are in this Advent series called Why He Came. And so this idea that we're talking about, as you can see, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, we're leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection. So if it's Christmas time, why are we doing that? Earlier this week, I was talking to my son, Brendan. He's seven. He was one of the kids singing up here. It was awesome. And so I said, buddy, I want you to pray for me this week because I have to preach on Sunday. He said, what are you preaching about? And I said, I'm preaching about Jesus being in front of Pilate. And he says, why are you preaching about Easter on Christmas? First of all, I was just amazed that he was able to put that together, right? I was like, oh, all right, that's awesome. And so then I tried to explain to him, with, without Easter, Christmas isn't that big of a deal. Without Jesus' death and resurrection, his birth, while a great story, does not change our lives. It does not give us hope. We are still hopeless. We're still dead in our sins without that. So that's why it's so much greater to be able to celebrate the coming of Christ, knowing where that led and knowing how that gives us freedom. In chapter 14, last week, again, if you were not here last week, Pastor Matt was talking about how the Jewish leaders felt threatened by Jesus. They had power, they had control, they had money, they had influence, they had everything. And so Jesus comes along and threatens to flip their world upside down. So in order to not have that happen, they begin to plot, how can we kill Jesus? He's on trial at the end of chapter 14, and all the witnesses they bring forward don't even have the same story. They can't even keep their story straight. But what happens is the, the, high, the high priest asks Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? Jesus says, yes, I am. And so what that does is that means Jesus is stating, yes, I'm on equal footing with God. And so for the Jewish leaders, that was enough to accuse him of blasphemy and to be worthy of death. Now, the Jewish leaders themselves could not execute someone because they were under Roman control. They were under the control of the Roman Empire at this time in history. They had to get okay from the Roman government to execute someone. So this is where we pick up our story today in chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Sabbath was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. 
the crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The first thing we need to understand is that everything, the timing of this has to be perfect in order for this to happen. The Jewish leaders want Jesus dead. Pilate just happens to be in Jerusalem. He doesn't just happen to be there. There's a reason that he's in Jerusalem at this point. So Israel's divided into three regions at this point in time. It's under Roman Empire control. It's divided into three regions. One of these regions is Judea. That's where Jerusalem is, which is where our story takes place. And Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea. Now, normally, where he resides is a place called Caesarea Maritima. It's on the water, probably a beautiful side, right? Like he's got lots of power. He can have the, the big house on the water. So it's quite a trip for him to get to Jerusalem. So then we have to ask, why is he there? During festivals, such as the Passover festival that we're in right now, so many people would come from out of town and gather in Jerusalem because that's where the celebration, that's where the festivals would happen. So during this time, whoever was the Roman governor would be in Jerusalem. The Jewish leaders knew this. They knew that Pilate was going to be there. They also knew that they needed Roman government permission to execute someone. So see, all this, all this timing has to work out perfectly, and we'll get, we'll get to a minute why that has to be the case. But they weren't allowed to do that without the Roman okay. So let's look back at verse 1. There's a couple of things in here. Very early in the morning, very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Very early in the morning, the Jewish leaders were eager to get rid of Jesus because he threatened everything about their way of life, everything that they loved, everything that in their mind gave them longing, everything that fulfilled them, Jesus threatened that. And he, Jesus knew it was a better way, but the Jewish leaders did not want that. People, people in power, people that have control and influence, have a really hard time giving that up. A very hard time giving that up. Another reason that this happened very early in the morning is because Roman legal proceedings stopped at mid-morning. They started at daybreak, they stopped at mid-morning so that the Roman noblemen could go have their whatever pursuit of leisure they chose to be involved in, they were done, right? That's a great job, right? It starts at daybreak and you're done by mid-morning. It's a fantastic job. So that's why they had to come early in the morning. The next part of that verse says, all of these leaders made their plans. If you weren't here last week, what we talked about was that all the witnesses had different stories, right? They, did, they couldn't even agree on the same thing, so that's why Jesus was still under trial, even though it was an unfair trial. So now the Jewish leaders are thinking, we have one shot to make sure that Jesus is executed. We got one chance. This is the Roman governor's here now. We got to put our, all our chips on the table. We have to make sure our story lines up. So they made their plans to make sure they had the correct story because they knew they may only get one chance at this. They couldn't afford to mess it up. There's a key phrase at the end of verse 1. It says, 
they led him away and handed him over to Pilate. This phrase, handed him over, was in chapter 14. It's in chapter 15 a couple of times here. And what it's implying, handed him over, is that Jesus was the innocent victim in this. Because of the wickedness of mankind, because of the wickedness of these leaders, Jesus is being handed over. He's being handed over to Pilate. So what it shows us is that the Jewish, Jewish leaders willingly are sending Jesus to his death, or what they're hoping will be to his death, even though they know he's innocent. That's not a concern of theirs. They don't care that he's innocent. He threatens their way of life. Right? The same, same thing, a lot of that happens with us too. When our way of life is threatened, when we get knocked off where we're comfortable, we start to get defensive about that. In verse 2, we begin this mostly one-sided conversation between Jesus and Pilate. And this first question tells us so much. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? So a couple of things that shows this. One, that the Roman authorities are aware of what's happening. They're aware of Jesus. They're aware of what people are saying. They know what's happening. They haven't gotten involved. Because when we look at the question Pilate asked, he says, are you the king of the Jews? Now, the reason that the Jewish leaders brought him is because they accused Jesus of making threats against the temple, and they accused Jesus of blasphemy. Pilate doesn't care about that, because those are Jewish religious customs that, as the Roman governor, he doesn't care. It's not worth his time. So that's why Pilate's question is, are you the king of the Jews? Because that's a more political question. Are you attempting to overthrow us is basically what he's asking. Because the Roman Empire had placed Herod as their client king, right? Meaning that they found a man who was Jewish that they knew would do whatever they wanted him to. And so they put him in charge over Israel. And that's what Herod was. So when he says, are you king of the Jews? He wants to know, are, do we have to worry about you, right? Are you a threat to us politically? And I love how Jesus answers this. This is just such a typical Jesus response. He says, you have said so. He doesn't give a direct yes. He doesn't give a direct no. He says, you have said so. See, sometimes we don't like when Jesus gives that type of answer because we want like this clear defined thing so we can kind of put Jesus in this box and say, no, I know every time how Jesus is going to answer. I know every time what he's going to say. The truth is everything that he thinks and says and how he goes about his business is so much greater than anything that we could comprehend. So this idea of putting him in a box, is he's, he's having none of that. But this conversation, which continues in verses 3 through 5, this is, this is going to be a, a big thing, so let's make sure we pay attention to this. Verses 3 through 5, the chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, if we're honest, we're amazed by that too, right? Through this whole book of Mark, Jesus is proclaiming that he is the Messiah, that he's come to make everything new. He's healing people. He's performing miracles. And when he's asked about this, he's silent. If we saw this on TV in our day and time, if we saw on TV this trial happening and the person that's being accused doesn't say anything, what do we think? We think he's guilty. Jesus here refuses to say something. The, the amazing part is that everyone knows he's innocent. Literally everyone involved in this story knows that Jesus is innocent. So why doesn't he say anything? 
Just earlier, like we talked about exchanging the good gift for the bad gift, that doesn't make sense. The same thing here. If he is innocent, why isn't he saying anything? Why doesn't he open his mouth? I mean, do we think Jesus feels defeated that if he says anything that he knows it's going to be bad, it's going to go wrong, and it's going to guarantee his execution? Does he just feel hopeless? Or is it maybe something more? Because Jesus' silence is necessary on multiple levels. In the first one we read a couple of weeks ago, Matt spoke about when Jesus was praying to God. He said, God, if there's any other way for this cup to pass, please let that happen. Meaning, God, if there's any other way other than me dying on the cross, can you please make that happen? And God said, this is the way. And Jesus is surrendering to God's sovereignty. It may not be what he preferred to do, but he also understood that God, in his ultimate wisdom, had planned this as the way to go. So Jesus is silent. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, in Isaiah, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah writes a lot about things that are going to be happening, and we read a lot about that, especially during this time of year. And Isaiah 53, 7 foretold this moment. Isaiah writes, He was oppressed and afflicted, Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And this writing again is fulfilled at this moment in time when Jesus refuses to speak. Now, here's the big kicker for why Jesus had to be silent. Because if he told the truth, there's a chance he's not crucified. Let's think about this. If he tells the truth, if he opens his mouth there's a chance he doesn't die. Because when Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? If Jesus says, no, no, I've got no interest in your political power. then Pilate's going to say, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to send this guy to be executed. You guys take care of it with your own Jewish religion, with your own customs. I'm not going to worry about that. And if he says he is the king, then Pilate can take that as a direct threat. So then people will see Jesus as being worthy of death because he challenged the sovereign Roman Empire in their minds. So Jesus had to be quiet. Because if he is never crucified, then you and I are dead in our sins. Without his death and his resurrection, we have no hope at all. So let's think about this. Think, really think about this. Jesus, who is wrongfully accused, the only way possible for him to get out of being crucified is just to open his mouth. And yet he refuses to do so. So what stops him? Why? Why would a man who knows he's innocent give his life when he's done nothing wrong? It's because of his love for you and his love for me. None of us would do that because that doesn't make sense. But Jesus, in this situation, Jesus refuses to rescue himself because he knows it's the only way that he can rescue us. He gives up his own life, refuses to rescue himself, because apart from that, there's no other way. Apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is no other way for us to be rescued. And we need to be rescued, every single one of us. And the funny thing is that in spite of all this, even as we read this, there are times in our lives where we actually say the words, does Jesus really love me? You know, things, we use these things, right? I, my, people in my family are sick. 
People have cancer. They're dying. If Jesus loved me, that wouldn't happen. If my kids behaved exactly the way I wanted them to, if Jesus loved me, I wouldn't be having problems with this. My kids would do what I wanted them to do. If Jesus loved me, I'd be married right now. If Jesus loved me, I would have kids right now. If Jesus loved me, I'd have a better job. I wouldn't have gotten fired. I'd have more money. All these things that we look to to fulfill us, we actually think in our minds, if Jesus loved me, this wouldn't be happening. And yet there's clear evidence that his love for us is deeper than we could ever begin to fathom. Our circumstances do not dictate the love of Christ. He proved his love a long time ago. A long time ago. But we get so arrogant in our sin as that we have earned the right to have a comfortable and easy life. As though Jesus' death, the whole point of Jesus' death was for us not to have any problems. I mean, that... (laughs) That is madness to be able for us to think that way. Now, our story doesn't stop there. Listen, we could do a whole thing just on the silence of Jesus and how that speaks volumes to our life. But it doesn't end there. Let's look at verses 6 through 8. Now, was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. So we see that the crowd's initiating this, right? The crowd's coming up to Pilate to start this. Verses 9 and 10. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. Knowing, again, this is proof that Pilate knew that nothing, Jesus didn't do anything wrong. Knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. See, Pilate knows this whole thing is nonsense. He knows that Jesus is innocent. He knows that the chief priests want to stay in control and want to stay in power, and that's why they're bringing Jesus to Pilate. But instead of granting Jesus freedom, Pilate asks the people, hey, what do you guys want me to do? Because he doesn't want to be held responsible. He doesn't want to be held responsible one way or the other. Because if he asks the people and the people ask for someone other than Jesus, then he can go back and tell the Jewish leaders, you know what? The people wanted this guy to be released, and they didn't want Jesus to die, so, you know, what can I do? It's what the people wanted. And so now, if he's accused of sending Jesus to his death, he can say, listen, the people wanted Jesus. my, My hands were tied. I can't do anything, right? You will never read this type of action in a leadership book, ever, because this is cowardice, right? It's not that we don't ask the people under us what we want. But Pilate knew the right thing to do. He knew Jesus was innocent. But instead of granting his freedom, Pilate's greatest concern was his own political security. So he listens to the people, as if he had any doubt. Verse 11 says, But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? In verse 13, crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Again, further proof that Pilate knows he's innocent. What crime has he committed, asked Pilate, but they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Pilate asked the question, what crime has he committed? They don't give a crime that he's committed. They just shout louder to crucify him. And here's what that tells us. The crowd also knows that Jesus is innocent but they don't care. 
They don't care. It's not, they don't even, at least this point, they don't have to worry about getting story straight because they're not even given a story. They're not even giving a reason why Jesus deserves death. They just know that they want his death. They don't care. Now, verse 15, I want you to take a moment and soak this in as we're reading it. So again, this again shows Pilate's cowardice. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So imagine this. We talked earlier about exchanging a bad gift for a good gift. Imagine this exchange right here. Jesus, who everyone knows is innocent. Everyone knows he has done nothing wrong. And they send him to be crucified, and they release Barabbas, who we know to be guilty, to go free. He releases Barabbas to go free. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. This exchange doesn't make sense. The chief priest handed him over to Pilate. Pilate hands him over to be crucified. This is the son of God we're talking about. How does he get so easily handed over to people? How does that happen? The only way to answer that is to look in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. If you're not taking the time to turn there, that's fine. Make sure you write this down because this is important for us to understand. They're talking to the Jewish people and it says, referring to Jesus, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan. Let me read that again because this is important for us to understand this. This was... This event was not as though God did not know what was coming. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. God handed him over. This was part of God's plan. Again, why? Why was this part of God's plan? To answer that, each one of us just needs to look into a mirror. Because it was each of you, it was me, it was every person throughout the history of mankind. God knew the only way for us to be rescued was for someone else to take our place. And so it even begs the question, why why did Jesus have to die? Because our punishment, our sin deserves punishment. There has to be punishment for sin because God is holy and we have sinned against him. Now, you and I cannot take that punishment and live. So as a substitute, Jesus takes our place. This is referred to as substitutionary atonement, exchanging the life of an innocent man for the life of guilty mankind because every single one of us is guilty. Jesus absorbed God's wrath. God's wrath against us was righteous because we had sinned against him. But instead of making us take it, he puts it on Jesus so that we're free. We're free now to not have to worry about that. So now we need to think about who are we in this story, right? Every, we, we love hearing stories, and as people, we love to inject ourselves into a story. So let's look at the characters. Let's do that now. Let's look at the characters and see who we are. Spoiler alert, you're not Jesus. Of all the characters, you can cross out you being Jesus, okay? So that leaves us with lots of wonderful choices. It leaves us with the chief priests. That's not a great choice. It leaves us with Pilate. That's not a great choice. It leaves us as being part of the crowd. 
or it leaves us as Barabbas. Now, in reality, we have all at one point or another been this one of these people. At each point in our lives, we have been one of these people. So let's start with the chief priests. The chief priests, they were in charge. They had power, they had influence, they had wealth, they had control. Everything that they thought would fulfill their lives. So when Jesus comes along and decides to flip this upside down, they want to get rid of him. We have to look at that. Is that where you are today? Is everything in your life the way you want it? But you know, if you fully give yourself to Jesus, you're going to have to change some things. We want just enough Jesus. Not anything that really requires us to make a difference in our lives, but just enough where we can go to sleep at night. Are we in that group? Because whenever we're in this group, we're cool with Jesus until he requires us to do something different. Something that goes against the way we think we should live. Just like the chief priest, we choose our own self-interest. Jesus, this is, this is, what, this is what I want to do. I want to I have more money. I, I want to go have sex with whoever. I want to have power. I want to have control. That's, that's what I want. So I'm fine with you until you tell me that that's not the way you'd have me to go. Then, then we're done. Then I want you out of my life. Or maybe you're Pilate. Pilate. Pilate knew of Jesus. Before this happened, Pilate knew who Jesus was. The text even says that Pilate was amazed by Jesus. Some of us are aware of Jesus. We like some of the things we hear. We love this whole idea of exchange. But like Pilate, our fear of the crowd is greater than our love for Jesus. We come in here on Sunday, we talk, man, Jesus is awesome, everything is great. And then Monday through Saturday, we wouldn't dare say his name because we're afraid of what other people are going to say to us. We're afraid of how people are going to look at us. We're afraid that we're going to be rejected. So outside of the church building, we never mention the name of Jesus. Are you Pilate? Are you the crowd? Are we calling out for Jesus to be crucified? Now, of course, if I ask you that right now, each one of us is going to say, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I would never do that. Well, then in reality, we, we all have. Because our sin made it necessary. But with people in the crowd, it says the chief priest stirred them up to tell them to release Barabbas. The crowd is easily swayed by whatever is popular at the time. If it's money, if it's power, if it's romantic love, if it's influence, if it's politics, whatever our culture says is popular, that's what the crowd goes after because the crowd hates to take a stand on something that's not popular. And maybe that's where you are today. The crowd never goes after Jesus. You know why? Because going after Jesus is not popular. Giving everything of yourself to not just, hey, I, I want Jesus so I can have a comfortable life, but to give everything you have to give that to Jesus is never going to be popular. That's never going to be a thing that 85% of the world decides to do. Jesus requires hard things of us, not for our salvation. He's offered that freely. But if we're going to fully give ourselves to him, that involves denying ourselves and denying our wants in order for what he wants the most. So have you chosen not to take a stand for Jesus because it's not the popular thing to do? I know for myself, 
I, I could probably give you a story about when I was each of these characters. But I know for me, before I became a Christian, I, I, I was most like the chief priest. I had things set up the way I wanted them to be. I was, things were comfortable, you know. Um, I was enjoying life. And then Jesus decided to come in and change all that. Right? At my point, before I became a Christian, I was involved with drugs, alcohol, all the things you can think of that the world goes to to fulfill us. I, I was in all that. And I knew that Jesus wanted to call me to more than that, but I didn't want to give that up. Now, luckily, eventually, God broke through and showed me that everything he has to offer is greater than anything that I could possibly have here on earth. But those times are hard. We don't like to change. We don't like any kind of change. Even as far as becoming a pastor, right, even after I became a Christian, I, I had no interest in working for a church. I, I didn't. I enjoyed my weekend. So if I wanted to go play golf on Sunday morning, I enjoyed going to play golf on Sunday morning. And then uh, my wife and Jesus both uh, woke me up to the fact that God was calling me to be in ministry. And it's not always the easiest thing. I'm, I'm by nature um, an introverted person. I don't, I don't want to stand out for anything, right? I want to just kind of go and just kind of be behind the scenes. But but God has called me to more than that. And so it's either, okay, do I want things the way that I want them, or am I going to surrender to what God has? That's the same thing for each of us. There's something that God is calling you to that's bigger than what you're doing right now, but you don't want to give up for that. You don't want to give that up for Jesus. Every single one of us has either been the chief priest or Pilate or the crowd, but there is hope. We can all be Barabbas. Now, I know that it's very weird to hear a story and to think, you know what, I want the guy who's in jail for murder to be who represents me in this story, <laughs> right? That doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. But that's where we are. Throughout this whole process, when Barabbas is being released, does anybody say, no, Barabbas is innocent? He didn't do it. Everyone knew Barabbas was guilty just as well as everyone knew Jesus was innocent. And if we're honest and we look at our lives, we know that we are guilty. We know that we are guilty of sin. We have sinned against God. We have made it necessary for Jesus to die. We need to understand that. Every single one of us, our sin, it's not just the people in this story. My sin and your sin has caused Jesus' death, has made it necessary. We've sinned against the holy God. We know that we're guilty. We deserve punishment. But Jesus has offered this great exchange for us. It's the best gift exchange you'll ever come across. Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to give you my righteousness. I'm going to give you true freedom. I'm going to take these chains off. And the only thing we can say to Jesus is, Here, here's my sin. I, this is all I got. That's the exchange. That's the great gift for the bad gift. Jesus exchanges his righteousness for our sin. And the last thing I want to leave you with is that Barabbas still had to walk out of the prison. Jesus offered his life for Barabbas, but he still had to do that. He still had to walk out of prison. How many of us are staying in these chains that our sin causes because we're comfortable with it and we don't want to let go? 
Jesus has offered you the greatest gift of all. He said, listen, my life for yours. No strings attached. My life for yours. Are you still in those chains? Have you walked out of the prison yet? If you haven't, I'd love to talk to you after the service to talk more about that. That is the greatest exchange we'll ever come across in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, there are no words that can give you enough thanks and enough praise for what you've done for us. We have absolutely nothing to offer you, nothing except for our sin. God, there's nothing that you would need that we would have to offer. And yet somehow, though it makes no sense, you exchanged your life for ours. God, we'll, we'll never be able to fully comprehend what that's like. We'll never be able to fully understand that, Lord. But I pray. God, I pray for people who are in here right now who have not made that exchange, Lord, who have not walked out of that prison, who are still sitting in chains because they see you as a means to an end instead of just seeing you as the thing that they need that's most important. We need to be rescued. Every single day of our lives, we need to be rescued. Lord, I pray for those who are still in chains, God, that they will receive your free gift. God, not that you have forced upon us, but that you give us so freely. We thank you for that, Lord. I pray that that impacts the way that we live throughout the week. God, the way that we treat others, the way we talk to others, Lord, the way we even look at ourselves to understand that you have decided that we have value. And you prove that worth. You prove that value by giving your life for ours. We thank you. In your son's name I pray. Amen.